0: People do need the Lord, they need to understand and come to the knowledge that they're not alone, that someone does love them and someone cares for them. In 1 Kings the 19th, chapter verse 9, if you'll take your Bible and we'll be reading from that text in just a few moments. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 9. A few days after Steve attended his first support group for adult children of alcoholics. He was possessed with a powerful image. It filled his mind and his soul. He saw himself in a large crowd of people, and God was holding his hand. And as they were moving through that crowd, he felt God pull back. And he was lost in this crowd, wondering where God was. He was separated, abandoned, completely alone. Steve attempted, as he he worked through this, he knew his faith was to carry him through. He knew the Scripture and the promises that God had made, but he was in this spiritual depression, distress. As hard as he wanted to believe, as hard as he held on to the idea that God would never leave him nor forsake him, that feeling was still there. And so he tried to overcome. He prayed more. He took his Bible and he read more. He found that everything that he did just sent him deeper into this spiritual anxiety. It didn't work. Every time that he kneeled to pray, his mind was filled with all kinds of ideas and thoughts and emotions. Every time he picked up his Bible to read, he would lose his concentration. And as his spiritual distress grew, he found himself like our prophet in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. He found himself in a cave of despair and spiritual isolation. Read with me there. In 1 Kings 19, beginning with verse (coughs) 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down underneath it, and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down underneath the tree and fell asleep. All at once the angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of baked bread and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and they laid down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. The mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And these words here. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Shall we pray? Father, I ask now that you be with us as we share the word. May our hearts be touched. May we seek the truth for us this day. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. How did Elijah, get to the cave. Well, you know, as I read Scripture there, particularly 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 chapter, I realize that, uh, that Elijah gets to this cave on a journey of obedience. It's not disobedience. He's not doing something wrong. Notice that he is preaching the truth in 1 Kings 17, chapter verse 24, as Elijah finds himself caring for a widow and her son. Notice what the woman says to Elijah there in chapter 17, verse 24. He says, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. He preached the truth. He was not out into uh, the modern philosophies of the day. He wasn't preaching false gods. He wasn't preaching false doctrine. He was preaching the truth as God had granted it unto him. He was faithful in his ministry. He was faithful to his calling. First Kings 18, verse 2, it says, And after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go and prepare yourself and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. He was a prophet of God. He was preaching the truth in a world and in a time of rebellion, in a time of idolatry, in a time of of rejection of the truth. And they wanted to kill him. They wanted to grab a hold of him. He was not popular. He was not liked. He was not lifted up. In many cases, he was despised by those that were around him. He was sincere in his single focus. He was focused not on himself, but on the ministry and on the people of God. He was concerned for the people of God who found themselves drifting away from the truth. It was a journey of tremendous power. He had been able to keep the widow and the son alive during a famine. Every single time they would go to get the meal and to get the oil, it was reproduced. Though as small as it was and though as insignificant as it was, it became significant because God was in it. It was powerful because God was multiplying it. And, and God was able to keep the prophet of God, the widow, and her, and her son. It was tremendous power. It was power in which he stood there before the people of God and restored the son. The widow's son had died And she complained, and she was heartbroken, and she reached out to Elijah. And Elijah grabs up the son and takes him upstairs to his room and prays to God, saying, God, I've asked this widow and her son to take care of me throughout this famine, and this is how you reward the widow? By taking her son? And he falls upon the son. And God, through his all power, reached out and restored that son to life. He was used to stand against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. What a scene on that mountain. As the prophets of Baal cry out to their God and nothing happens, as they cut themselves, as they fall prostrate upon the ground, nothing happens. But when God moves through Elijah... He consumes the fire. He consumes the altar. He is a powerful God. And Elijah was in tune with God, and God used him in a mighty way. So much to the point that Jezebel threatened to kill him, as we read in our text today. He was chased by the army. He was forsaken by his people. But God used him. You know, many of us find ourselves on that journey to spiritual distress. We've experienced the saving power of God, and he moved in our life, and he changed our life, and he gave us purpose, and he gave us reason to face each day. He forgave us of our sins, and we rode on that high of experiencing God. But as time went along, and as the cares of the world took their possession of us, we came off that, did we not? We would share with people our faith. We would share with people the love that we had. But as we began to journey, it just became so familiar. It became so old hat. We may have been used by the power of God to teach a Sunday school class, to lead a men's group, to sing in the choir, to do whatever God had for us and God used us. And then someone came along and stole our joy. And stole our peace. We were doing great things and somebody had to come up and whisper in our ear. Those negative thoughts. Those words of criticism. And we found ourselves hurt, despair. We found ourselves broken. This week, this Friday, Rick Warren lost his son to suicide. His son had been wrestling with mental illness and had gone to a lot of doctors and resources to help him. And he told his dad at one time he just wished that he would just die and God would just take away the pain and the agony that was in his being. Ladies and gentlemen, Christians suffer in spiritual distress. It is not foreign. It is not unusual. It is a powerful, powerful possession that we don't sense the power of God. We don't see him working. We don't feel his touch. And the world is crowding in on top of us. Our relationships are breaking. Those that we love are walking away from us and betraying us. The finances that we had just seemed to flitter away in this economy my dad who was about 84 years of age now prepared to die he bought his plot he paid for his funeral he made sure mom had insurance and everything was set and you know what happened he got parkinsons and he's alive But he's not in his right mind. He's not at home. He's not where he wants to be. And he's alive, but he didn't plan for it. And he is in that distressful mode. And it's painful in his life. But as I think of Rick, and as I think about those broken relationships, as I think about those career challenges, I realize that the journey to the cave is all around us. But I also noticed one other thing, that Elijah sojourned in that cave. It was a cave, for him, of self-pity. He was a strong man. If you read the passage of Scripture there, verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 46, you'll find that Elijah, after he had performed the miracle on Mount Carmel, and after he prayed for rain and the cloud was coming, He tells Ahab, you need to get off and, you know, you need to get in your chariot. and You need to get, make your way to Jezebel and tell her the famine is over. The rain is coming. Prepare for it. And God tells Elijah, you need to go to Jezebel and tell her. And notice what happens. Mount Carmel is about 16 miles to Jezreel. And Jezreel is halfway between Samaria. This was the place that, that Jezebel and Ahab were staying. And that passage of scripture there in 1846 says that Elijah, the prophet of God, runs through the power of God those 16 miles. Because, you see, if it was me, God would have had to give me the power to do that, too. Because there's no way I'm going to run 16 miles. Outrun a chariot and a horse. There is no way that's going to happen. But Elijah does that. He is robust. He is a man of strength. He is able to endure the, the hardships that were set before him. And notice after he had done this in chapter 19, verse 4, he says, While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a bloom tree and sat underneath it and prayed, I have had enough. Have you ever been to that place that you just had enough? You're Just done. Okay? Just done. No more. A lot of you spouses have been there, haven't you? Just had enough. I can't take it anymore. Have you been on that job that way? Have you been at that job where you just went, I can't go another day? Okay. There's just no way I can see that boss one more day. There's no way I can see my cubicle buddy one more day. There is just no way I can see him face to face. I just can't take it anymore. Some people feel that way in church. Did you know that? Some people go, I'm not going there. They're so messed up, you know. That preacher can't preach. That choir can't sing. And the people I sit by just have this frown on their face. I'm just not going there anymore. I've had Enough. I've had enough of my Sunday school class. I've had enough of my women's group. I've had enough of my men's ministry. I'm just fried, and I'm done. Been there? Been there, done that, haven't you? Been there, done that, have it. Told the boss, here it is. Teenagers, we just, many times when we quit, we just don't go back. You know, we just go, hey, guys, forget it. I've pushed enough hamburgers. I've pushed enough brooms. I'm not doing that anymore. In college, I had a job hauling at the freight yard, at the railroad yard, loading those freight cars with grain. I weighed 135 pounds. Guess how long it took me to get fried, Okay. After a few pounds of hauling that grain around, I realized, is there a broom in the house? Okay, I will sweep all day long. Elijah says, I'm done. Take my life. Just get me out of here. I can't take it anymore. It was a cave in which there was a war, a a warped sense of reality. It was distortion. Notice while he was in the cave, he began to blame everybody. It was everybody's fault he was there. The children of Israel, Lord, they've just forsaken you. They've just rejected the truth. They just don't want to do that. You know, as a preacher, many times we get into, I'm I'm leaving the church. I'm done. That church is it, okay? That church is it. I quit. They don't want to do what's right. They don't want to hear the word. They don't want to respond to the word. I just quit. I'll go to another church in which they'll be excited about serving the Lord and they'll be excited about uh, doing ministry. And you know what? People are people. I found out that the same people that I had at Beulah Baptist were at Creech Memorial. And those people that were at Creech Memorial, they were at Meadowbrook. And I'm like, good gracious, Lord. You just keep multiplying them. They just pop up everywhere. They have different names. They look differently. But guess what? People are people. He had a a warped sense of that reality. He thought everybody had rejected God. Notice that he had a false reality in which he thought that he was the only preacher left. I'm the only one declaring the truth. I'm the only one standing in the gap. I'm the only one declaring what's right. And notice also that he had a fear of Jezebel. Now, he probably should have feared Jezebel a little bit, okay, because Jezebel was out after him, and Jezebel was going to kill him. But he's wanting to die anyways, right? If you're wanting to die anyways and Jezebel's out after you, man, that sounds like a quick solution. Just go find Jezebel. She'll take care of it. Did he really want to die? No, he didn't really want to die. He wanted to be relieved of the pain that was in his being. The pain, that spiritual anxiety that was there. You know, we find ourselves in those caves of life, driven into those caves by exhaustion. We've worked hard. We've ministered hard. We've worked in our Sunday school class. We've worked in the choir. We've worked uh, serving him day in and day out. And we're just exhausted. We've been driven into this cave by a distorted image of God. We think that God is the candy man. That all we got to do is... Accept him as Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, it is smooth sailing. I'll get all the promotions that I need. I'll get all the raises that I need. My children will march in, sit down, look forward, be dressed sharp. Every place and every hair will be in place. Their dresses will be nice. It is going to be a great life being a Christian. Fantastic. All my cares will be gone. And if I do have a care, all I got to do is pray, and God's going to be right there, and he's going to take it away. We have a distorted view of who God is. Notice that we've been driven to that cave by a warped sense of reality. Nobody loves me. They really don't like me at all. Nothing's going right. This pain that I have is never going away. I have no friends. My career is over. I have no future. God has left me. Beware when you start your sentence with absolutes. Always, nobody, nothing, everything. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. Because not everybody hates you. Your mom probably still loves you. Not everybody has forsaken you. Your bill collectors are looking for you. Everything's not going wrong. It just looks that way. We're driven into that cave by blaming others. It's our parents' fault. If my dad had only known how to raise kids, I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't be scarred. I wouldn't have these these emotional traumas in my life. I wouldn't have these flashbacks. Life would be so great if my mom would have just treated me right. We blame our spouses. If my wife would just clean the house, life would be great. And Jackie does. Because she would tell you, I'm the guy that messes it up. She's the one that cleans it up. And we've had great discussions at that all the time. I've learned how to pick up my shoes. Personalities, James and I talk about personality type. D-type personalities, dominant type personalities, really take advantage of S-steady type personalities. My wife is steady. She's just as solid as a rock. She will do it even to the point of somebody abusing her. And I have the ability probably to abuse her because I leave my shoes when we first got married, right where they're supposed to be in the living room. And, you know, left stuff where I thought it was supposed, where I could find it, okay? She thought that shoes ought to be in closets and that clothes ought to be hung up. And if it's dirty, it goes in the dirty clothes hamper. You know, those just seem logical to her. But many times we blame our spouses. We blame our bosses. I didn't get that raise because my boss doesn't like me. It must be the government's fault. Okay? If we had had the right government, it would not have happened. We find ourselves in the cave of life. Notice, likewise, that Elijah escaped from the cave as we escaped from the camera. Okay? Good. Elijah escaped from the cave, but realized that while he was in the cave, he was sustained by God. On his journey, God, all the way through the, to the journey of the cave, to him arriving there, God sustains him. He finds himself under the bush, and God prepares for him a meal of bread and water. He prepares it not once, but twice. He prepares for, uh, for him while he's at the brook. And he feeds him with the ravens. God is watching out over Elijah all the way in his journey. And Elijah takes all that for granted. Even while he's in the cave, God visits him. Notice there what happens in the cave in verse 19, 11, chapter 19, 11 through 13. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart. God's coming, Okay? Chapter 19, 11 through 13, God's coming. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And Elijah heard it. And he took his coat, he took his cloak, and he covered his face. And he went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. And God came. And God came. In the pit of distress. In the pit of depression. In the pit of rejection. And distorted views of reality. God comes. And God's not coming with the limos before him and after him. He's not coming with the movie cameras and the TV cameras. He's not coming with a trumpet sounding. He's coming in that still, small voice. Going, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And there in verse 15 and 16, God gives him a new mission a mission to appoint the king of Israel, and a mission to anoint Elisha, his successor. And God reminds him, you're not by yourself. There's 7,000 men and women that have not bowed their knee to Baal. You're not alone. You're not alone. If we are going to face the realities in our life, if we're going to escape from the, cam- uh, from the cave, we need to first of all face our spiritual distress in Ephesians 4.25. Scripture tells us that we need to be honest with ourselves. It's so easy for us to put on that coat of self-righteousness and to speak that, those God words. When inside we're in pain and in agony, and God says to us, "Be." Honest. Be honest. It hurts, Lord. I don't know where I'm going from here, Lord. Lord, I don't even know if you're real. I'm in such pain. Be honest with him. He knows the truth anyways. He knows what you're thinking anyways. And we need to move away from this shame-based to a grace-based spirituality. And Luke, the 15th chapter, is the story is the account of the prodigal son. And many of us as preachers focus in on the prodigal son. We focus in on his shame as he's feeding the pigs in a foreign land. We focus on his shame of how he took his inheritance and threw it away. We focus on the shame of his clothes that had been tattered and torn, and he was dirty and stinky. And as he realized he's got to go to his father, and so he takes his journey to his father, and his father sees him afar off. He sees his son, and he doesn't smell him. He doesn't see the dirt. He sees his son. And his son came and fell and said, Father, forgive me, for I've sinned. And Lord, you know, Father, just let me be a servant in your house. That's all I want to be. But you see, the message of God is this. I will clean you up. And I'm going to give you a new coat and a new set of clothes. And I'm going to put a new ring on your finger. And I'm going to give you a new name. And you're going to sit at the table right beside me. Because you are... God loves us. God loves us. No matter how deep it may be, no matter how painful it may be, no matter how far along in our distress we may be, God loves us. And will forgive us. He is one of compassion. And he meets us not with a stick to beat us into subjection, But he meets us with compassion and love and embraces us because he cares for us. This morning, will you receive his mission for your life and his new vision? Will you call upon him to show you the reality that is around you? Will you find the hope in his promises? And more importantly than that, will you find the hope in his power to change our lives? God can make us new. I've been in that cave. I've been in that cave. I've cried out to God. What's going on around me? This isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. I'm obeying you. I'm listening to you. God, People shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. And he just picked me up and he embraced me. And he loved me. Forgave me. And walked with me. And I'm convinced of this today, ladies and gentlemen. No matter where you may find yourself today, God will embrace you. And he will love you. And he will walk with you. You can't get away from him. He's everywhere. You can't out-sin, God. God's forgiven it all. He paid it all. There is no sin he won't forgive. God loves you today. You don't have to stay in the cave, shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your spirit will be upon us and that you will move amongst us in a mighty way. And if there are men and women in that cave of distress, men and women that are doubting how they walk this walk, Father, may your Spirit move amongst them, and may they hear your voice speaking to them today. For this we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.